Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is your latest coronavirus update on the highest court in the land. As with all things these days, news is moving quickly. And it seems like, Jordan, every time we put out a new episode, the news overtakes it shortly after. I know, right? Well, I think that just means everyone needs to subscribe to the podcast so you get it when it's hot off the presses, right? Exactly. Um, So we're doing our best here. um, And we actually got some exciting, dare I say, historic news to update listeners on. Whoa. I know. I'm going to save it. And we got a great guest, Hogan Lovell's Neil Cottell, to help us put it all in perspective. So let's get started. We're recording this episode on April 16th. Jordan, can you tell us about this historic news? Sure can. So let's uh, go back to this harrowing time. There we were on Monday morning, just sitting there, trapped in our homes. No hopes, no (laughs) dreams. Worst of all, no Supreme Court news. And then around 10 a.m., bam! Our lives change forever, or at least for the next month or so. We got an announcement from the court saying that a select group of the cases that were going to be heard, argued in the postponed March and April sessions, are now going to be argued over the phone in May. Wow. It's a huge step for a court that truly had not been keeping pace with the times, at least as far as court technology goes. Right. And so there are about 10 cases, um, many of them consolidated, that the court is going to hear. And those are going to start in May. Actually, they're going to start May 4th. And one of those is the subpoena showdown over President Trump's financial documents. Another is the challenge to state action against so-called rogue electors or faithless electors. And these are just members of the Electoral College who don't want to vote for the presidential candidate that they pledged to vote for. The court released its calendar for the May arguments also this week, setting the subpoena cases for May 12th and the electors case for May 13th. And of course, we already did a deep dive episode on those Trump subpoena cases right before the March session was postponed. Speaking of news changing quickly after our podcasts come out, and that was featuring a couple of lawyers involved in that litigation. But the issues in those Trump cases that we discussed on that deep dive episode last month are all still the same. So you should all check that one out if you haven't yet. And even if you have already, you can use it to teach your kids at home a civics lesson. Um. (laughs) Mommy, what's Stormy Daniels? Well, um, Stormy Daniels aside, I think in both of the those cases that I talked about, the president's financial documents, as well as the faithless electors, there's kind of a time element to it, right? So people, um, political groups um, who are watching these cases had really urged the Supreme Court to decide these cases quickly ahead of the 2020 elections. Um, And so those make sense. But Jordan, why did the court put on some of the other cases for now and put off all the others for next term? Well, of course, the court doesn't explain itself, uh, probably to help provide fodder to Supreme Court podcasts like Mm -hmm. ours, right? So we have to speculate about it. Um, So I think some of the cases are easier to figure out why than others. Uh, For example, I'll note one, McGirt against Oklahoma, which is going to be argued the day before the Trump cases on May 11th. We'll hopefully get deeper into that case either before or after the argument. But underlying the McGirt case is the long-running dispute over Native American reservation boundaries in Oklahoma, which could have a huge impact in the region. And this is an issue that was actually argued last term in the case of Patrick Murphy. Um, But Justice Gorsuch was recused in that Murphy case, and they couldn't reach a decision last term. They set it down for consideration this term, but instead of 
winding up deciding this Murphy case, they put it on hold and instead granted cert in McGirt, which rhymes. Um, <laughs> so Gorsuch is not recused in this McGirt case, and he sided with Native American rights in prior cases so he could wind up providing the tie-breaking vote for them. We'll still have to see. Again, we'll wind up getting deeper into that case in a later episode. And so th- that's uh, all a long way of saying in terms of why I put McGirt in the special May sitting, I think two reasons. Uh, first, it's a super important issue, and... Relatedly, I would think that the chief wouldn't want to push the issue off to a third term without good reason. Right. So and then I, I, I saw some speculation on the Twitters the other day about um, perhaps the Supreme Court had put on another case booking dot com, which is a trademark case, um, had put it on because the advocates there are really seasoned and they could be, you know, pretty good guinea pigs for these telephonic arguments. Um, and so it's it's the SG's office and Williamson Connolly's uh, Lisa Blatt. So uh, they'll be kicking off arguments on May 4th. Yeah, I was thinking about that in terms of that case having really experienced advocates. I mean, one of the cases that would push was pushed off to next term is Google against Oracle, mm-hmm. a huge copyright case. I think we can safely say that it's a more impactful case than the Booking.com case. In that case, you know, Google and Oracle each have incredibly experienced advocates too. So it's it's really, again, tough to say why it is they're choosing one case over another, but maybe we'll find out someday. Yeah, maybe to help us uh, to answer some of these questions, we should bring on a more seasoned advocate than you and I. Like someone who's argued like one case, at least, in the Supreme Court. Right, right. Yes, that's what I meant. Neil Kotyal is a partner at Hogan Lovells. Before that, he was acting Solicitor General under President Obama. He's argued 41 cases at the Supreme Court, a notable one in recent years being the argument against President Trump's travel ban. Mr. Kotyal? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Neil, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks. It's great to be with you both. So in addition to announcing uh, that it will hear arguments over the telephone, the court also said that it would allow the proceedings to be live streamed. Can you put it into perspective how big of a deal that is for the Supreme Court? I think it is an extraordinary deal. Um, You know, the whole country, the world is facing this unprecedented crisis and it affects every aspect of our lives. And yes, it's affected the Supreme Court. Um, The Supreme Court was preparing to hear arguments in March and April. Um, And then the COVID crisis hit and they first just canceled them. And now they've come back and said half of them are going to be heard in May um, with this live audio option and half will be kicked to October. Um, And, you know, those of us uh, like I've been someone who very strongly believes that there should be cameras in the courtroom. There should be immediate access the way there is, for example, in the United Kingdom for the public to be able to see it. Um, the court's been resistant to that for any number of reasons, which you know I'm I'm sure they you know that they're that they've been persuaded by in the past. Um, but this is an extraordinary thing, and so they've done something here. I think it's a great thing that they've done, and you know I don't think it should be the basis to you know push the court by itself and say oh now you've got to do this for all time. I think this is an unusual circumstance. They're going to try this out. I think it was a wise decision. Well, as somebody um, who has access to arguments a lot, um, you know, I, I definitely agree with you that they should not um, keep doing this so that I can keep my day job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right now you do have a little bit of a monopoly, and that's it does really sadden me because this is the people's court, and I, I want all Americans to be able to see 
how well this thing works. You know, you see it, Kimberly. It's it's such a amazing, inspiring thing to to behold when you're watching an argument and see how engaged they are. And so I, I want all Americans to be able to see that. And so, Neil, do you think then when we go back to quote unquote normal times, you think we're just going to go back to not having any live streaming? Isn't going to isn't it going to be difficult for the court to justify that? Well, I think that that the court has that's the operating procedure that I think they're undergoing right now, which is to say, look, this is for May. I mean, it may yield some useful information about how the costs and benefits of such a thing. But um, I really don't feel it's appropriate for people to say, now that the court's done it in May, they've got to do it for all time because um, the court is very tradition bound. They have all sorts of reasons for sticking with what's worked in the past. And here they've decided to do something extraordinary and new. And I think they should be commended for that and not have that be some albatross around their neck so that the next time when they have to do some sort of unprecedented action, they have to worry, oh, now we're locking into this for all time. So you mentioned that, you know, this experience might yield some information about some of the benefits and difficulties of, you know, live streaming. Can you tell us about some of the difficulties that advocates are having uh, preparing for these arguments, uh, particularly as it relates to, you know, the fact that they're happening over the phone? Yeah, I think there's two different issues. One is the live streaming and the other is the telephonic nature of the argument. With respect to live streaming, um, you know, like I've had many arguments that I've made at the court, um, including the travel ban case, which the Supreme Court releases audio right when the argument finishes. So an hour delay, basically, while the court's going into session and hearing it. And then the minute we walk out of the courtroom, they press play, and then it's played on, you know, networks across the country and world. Um, So that, you know, that was my very first argument in Guantanamo and Hamdan back in 2006 as well. Same thing happened. Um, And, you know, I will tell you, just having had that experience in those cases and some others, it's a daunting thing to know every one of your words can be played on national <laughs> television and the global stage. Um, and so it's scary. Um, at the same time, you know, if you're arguing a case like that, um, you know, the world should hear you know, and, be, you know, should hear what you say and hear it in close to real time. So I think that that'll, you know, be a little scary for some advocates. But I think in general, the whole idea of live audio is a really good one. Um, and it allows the public to hear what's going on um, at the court. And um, I certainly am planning on trying to cover some of the arguments live for the public um, as they take place in May so that they can really experience what, you know, Kimberly, you and I get to experience. So that's one thing. The other is the telephonic thing. And, you know, all of us have been doing now telephone conference calls, Zoom calls, different things like that. And we've seen some of the um, benefits, but also some of the costs. Um, you know, there's the phenomenon of the person who's blaring on on a speakerphone because they can't read the body body language of other people. Um, and that's what, you know, one of the downsides of a telephonic argument. You know, when I'm up at the Supreme Court, I'm watching every justice for their reactions to whatever I'm saying. And you're losing all of that in a telephonic argument. Again, I think it's the best the court could have done under the circumstances, but it is a really different thing. And it's harder for the advocate to pick up on um, cues 
just when all you can hear is someone's voice. You can't see them. And so I do think it's going to be quite a challenge. Yeah, I think um, one thing that we're experiencing, um, some of the difficulties with having, you know, some of the things we would normally do in person happen over the phone is that you can hear a cat incessantly um, (laughs) (laughs) meowing sometimes. So sorry about that to all of our listeners. So Neil, we talked about some of the potential challenges for advocates. Do you think there could be any benefits in arguing over the phone remotely? Yeah, um, I've done a large number of phone arguments um, in the lower courts, and um, including even in the travel ban case, the very first oral argument, which was taking place in the district court in Hawaii, we had to do by phone because I had a D.C. circuit argument the next day. Um, And I'll tell you, one of the big advantages is that if you have um, a practice that's structured around teamwork, it is an enormous advantage because in a regular like Supreme Court argument, if I'm up at the podium, it's just me. But in a telephonic argument, you can have your whole team around you. And particularly, you know, if you have worked closely with them, they know when to pass you a note and when not to and when, you know, and and you've figured out how to harness all of their insights most effectively. So I do think that for for those appellate shops that focus really on the teamwork aspect of appellate litigation, it's a real, real benefit um, because you can quickly harness your team and get some um, good uh, good insights. That's one thing. The other thing, I guess, is, you know, like for me, um, I'm always, as an advocate, uh, terrified that a justice is going to ask a question about something in the record or facts, and I don't have the answer right at hand. Um, and so I always spend the weekend before reading the record, just so that if a justice says, where is that? You know, I just have that page right instantly in my memory. Um, with a telephonic argument, you can have notes, a bazillion notes and post-its and this and that right in front of you. So you don't really need to quite spend as much time on those kind of memory-laden aspects of litigation. You can have those, I think, you know, be in your notes, and you can look at your notes um, in a telephonic argument. So that's another difference. So um, switching gears just a little bit, uh, you know, we we talked a little earlier in the episode about which cases the justices agreed to hear in May versus putting them off um, until next term, which starts in October. Do you have any thoughts about why the court chose those particular cases while the others um, it put off? Well, I can't speak to all of them, but there are at least a couple that have to do with the 2020 election in various ways. Um, I guess four of them, uh, maybe five. Um, The cases about the so-called faithless electors, as well as the three Trump tax return cases. Both of those, I could see some pretty strong public interest arguments for having them uh, adjudicated before the court goes out. Um, There are some other ones that are... um, incredibly important, like Google versus Oracle, which have been put back till October, or the cases that my uh, colleague Sean Morata is arguing for Ford, the personal jurisdiction cases, really big major issues in the law. Um, But the court has said uh, that those will be heard in October. So I mean, it it seems like the the court really prioritizes the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. You know, we got to get that case heard and argued right away. That can't wait. Right? <laughs> well, you know, it's hard <laughs> to know why they picked some of the cases for one and not the other. But at least some, I think, you can, you know, like the the more 
politically laden ones um, about the Trump tax returns in the Electoral College. I don't mean political in the sense of Republican versus Democrat. I just mean in the sense of they're important to the 2020 election cycle. Well, that's that's been really helpful to talk to you today. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat and kind of put things in perspective for our listeners. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be with you both. Well, that'll be interesting to see how those live stream arguments go. So many questions that it raises, like, what are the lawyers going to wear? Uh, we saw recently in Florida that a judge had to remind lawyers there to wear shirts. <laughs> but we'll only have audio for these Supreme Court arguments, so I guess we'll never know. I really liked the <laughs> that story that you mentioned where the, uh, the other example they gave of, like, hey, um, let's remember to dress professionally on Zoom was a lawyer who was still in bed with the covers on. <laughs> What what are you doing? Yeah, I think, um, well, I would say that I would think that Supreme Court advocates aren't going to do that, but they could do it and we would just never know because we're not going to be able to see them, right? Right. Well, the Supreme Court itself has had some practice um, over telephone. They've been holding all their conferences lately over the telephone. And at least one other justice seems to be pretty comfortable um, with even more advanced remote communications like video conferences. Right, Jordan? That is right. Uh, Justice Breyer, for example, has been zooming all over the place. He called into a session of the United Nations International School, and he was also featured in a public service announcement telling New Yorkers to fill out the census. Hello, my name is Stephen Breyer. I'm a justice of the United States Supreme Court, and today I want to encourage you to fill out your census form. And of course, uh, Justice Breyer was in the 5-4 majority ruling against the Trump administration's attempt to put a citizenship question on the census. Right. I really love that census um, infomercial when Justice Breyer like whipped out his pocket constitution. I was like, that is so, that's so Justice Breyer. (laughs) That comes from the Constitution of the United States. It says that every 10 years... Government will take a census counting the Yeah, he's like sitting there in his living room. He's like, hello, I'm Justice <laughs> Stephen Breyer. I thought he was going to try and like sell me a reverse mortgage or something like that. So I'm sure many of our listeners will want to listen in on these historic arguments. And so we hope to have a sort of cheat sheet on the cases being argued sometime in the near future. So keep an eye out for that. For sure. And the telephone arguments, of course, that's the big news of the week. But there was also another important technological development at the court with the justices taking another small step into modernity or closer to it by letting lawyers forego filing certain uh, paper copies of documents. Kimberly, you had a story on that this week. Well, that's right. And so this is really a move to limit the number of paper filings and potential exposure to the coronaviruses, to the justices, and also to the staff at the court. So they issued an order on April 15th that requires petitioners to file just one copy instead of 40 of certain case initiation documents. And these are things like you know a cert petition asking the court to review their case. They also said that they didn't have to be in booklet format. So sorry to all the SCOTUS printers out there who are now out of work. Um, but they also strongly encourage the parties to do electronic service rather than paper. I know that at least some lawyers are going to be happy about that because filing all those paper copies is super expensive. But Kimberly, you said you don't think that this new rule will last. Uh, well, I mean, it's always hazardous, as the listeners have heard me say a million times, always hazardous to guess what the justices are going to do. But while they limited the paper filing for you know case initiation documents like cert petitions, they didn't do that for um, cases that have already been granted. Yeah. So to me, that suggests that the justices aren't really interested in doing away with paper altogether, but maybe just getting rid of some of the perhaps higher risk 
versions of paper. And Kimberly, last week we were talking about an abortion fight that was brewing and looked like it might be heading up to the Supreme Court. Can you give us an update on that? Well, sure. It actually did land in the Supreme Court and then was swiftly uh, taken out. So to back up, last time we mentioned that the abortion litigation out of Texas, in which abortion providers were suing over Texas's ban on abortions in an effort to save personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, was coming to the Supreme Court. The petitioners there had actually filed an order asking the Supreme Court to put the Fifth Circuit's order on hold. That circuit had initially upheld the ban, but then recently the Fifth Circuit did allow certain medical abortions to go forward. That is abortion where all that's necessary to terminate the pregnancy is to take a pill. And so the abortion providers withdrew their request. So uh, that's where we are on the Texas case. And so do you think that that means that that's the last we'll hear about abortion at the Supreme Court anytime soon? Oh, yeah, that's probably an issue that's <laughs> totally going away and everybody will have a level head about it. Um, no, uh, probably not. So the Texas ban is set to lift soon, but there's so much uncertainty about the COVID situation that the ban could very re- easily be extended. And there are also a handful of other states that had ordered similar bans, and the legal challenges to those are already working their way through the judicial system. So um, I don't think that abortion is going to be um, out of the Supreme Court for good. But that is not the only coronavirus issue lurking out there. Jordan, can you tell us what's happening on the religious front? Sure. So heading into Easter Sunday in particular, there were lots of clashes surrounding bans on gatherings applying to religious services too. We actually touched on that briefly in our last week's interview with Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt, but perhaps the most noteworthy coronavirus religion opinion came in a case where there might not have even been a dispute at all. Weird, right? That noteworthy opinion, it came from U.S. District Judge Justin Walker in Kentucky, and we might be hearing more about Justin Walker in the years to come because the judge who's still in his 30s is President Trump's next pick for the D.C. Circuit, the appeals court thought of as the second highest court in the land. But... Before he heads to Washington, Walker, a former Kavanaugh clerk, he issued this opinion here at the trial level, and according to Walker's opinion, issued the day before Easter, at issue was a Louisville social distancing order that blocked drive-in church services. The judge's opinion blocked the city from enforcing the order, but that opinion stands out for a couple reasons. First, according to the mayor, there was no order in the first place that they were going to enforce. And the city tried to tell Walker that, the city said, but the judge ruled without hearing from the other side. And so after the ruling, the mayor and the city, they filed a motion saying, um, there was no order. We just said some stuff at a press conference and we tried to tell you that before you ruled, but we couldn't get through to you. So the judge might have ruled on a thing that wasn't a thing or fitting for this podcast that wasn't a case or controversy. Wow. That was made for this. But that that's just the first half of it. And then that's the, I guess, the procedural aspect of it. Then there's the language in the opinion itself, which got a lot of attention when it came out. Um, Definitely worth reading the whole thing, or not, depending on your perspective. But here's the introduction. It says, On Holy Thursday, an American mayor criminalized the communal celebration of Easter. That sentence is one that this court never expected to see outside the pages of a dystopian novel, or perhaps the pages of The Onion. But two days ago, citing the need for social distancing during the current pandemic, Louisville's mayor, Greg Fisher, ordered Christians not to attend Sunday services, even if they remained in their cars to worship, and even though it's Easter. The mayor's decision, 
Judge Walker said, is stunning, and it is, beyond all reason, unconstitutional. And so that's just a taste of the opinion. There's definitely a lot more that it goes into besides that. It read almost more like a sermon or a law review article or a law review note, so you'll have to check that out if you want to see more of it. Um, Our colleague Madison Alder, who we had on here on a previous episode talking about the courts, she had a story on the opinion, and law professor Eric Siegel told her that Walker is essentially auditioning for a Supreme Court seat. So I think we'll leave it at that for now, but we'll see if Walker continues that style on the D.C. Circuit and who knows, maybe beyond. All right. Well, we'll see if that issue actually makes it up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it hasn't yet, but you never know. All the litigation comes at us fast these days. But uh, speaking of that, yet another issue seems to have cropped up under the radar while these big election and abortion issues have been pending. Kimberly, can you catch us up on this public charge challenge? Right. And so if listeners are thinking um, that we've already covered this public charge order, uh, they would be right. Uh, So this involves the DHS's controversial public charge rule that the administration put in place in 2019. It's meant to weed out green card holders who are likely to need public assistance. So back in January, can you do you remember that far back there was a january once i don't know (laughs) well back in january when there was a january the supreme court allowed the rule to take effect while the legal challenges actually worked their way through the courts and then in february it did so with respect to the state of illinois Hey, wasn't that that case where Justice Sotomayor, she blasted her colleagues and the government in a really strong opinion? Uh, Yep, that's the one. So both of those emergency orders came down 5-4 along ideological lines with the more liberal justices in dissent. And in that February order, uh, Sotomayor sounded off against her colleagues for consistently giving into the Trump administration's request for emergency relief from the Supreme Court and their willingness to weigh in on disputes, even though they're still being being considered by the lower courts. And President Trump even called on Justice Sotomayor to recuse herself from certain cases, right? Right, based on that opinion. Um, But I don't think she's going to. As we mentioned, the court will hear the cases uh, seeking President Trump's financial records in this upcoming May sitting. And so far, at least, no recusals have been announced. Okay, so what's actually going on in this current public charge case that's landed at the Supreme Court? Well, the plaintiffs who are challenging the public charge rule have filed a new motion with the court asking them to stay the order that allowed the public charge rule to go into effect. And they cite concerns over the coronavirus. They say that individuals who are green card holders uh, are going to avoid getting health care and other public assistance that are necessary and that this is putting them and the public at large at risk. So that request is still pending and we'll see if the justices act on it. Well, we'll be sure to update our listeners on that case and whatever other issues are cropping up and So I think at this point, Kimberly, we've touched on the pandemic, abortion, religion, immigration, uh, President Trump, all those cases. I think that's going to be enough for today's episode. What do you think? You forgot the most important thing. What's that? Uh, My cat. We also... Oh, that's true. Yeah, we had our our own special guest who I guess a little rudely of us, we we didn't uh, introduce this guest. Do you want to give a formal introduction? Uh, Well, um, he's a cat. His name is Oscar. Interesting. He knows a lot about about the law and the Supreme Court and uh, meowing, a lot about meowing. All right. Well, thanks, Oscar. 
Well, Cases and Controversies listeners can stay up to date on all the latest Supreme Court and Oscar the Cat news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Dot cat. (laughs) Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu. And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.